clear of the closing doors, please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, fantasy, horror, sci-fi, and the just plain weird come together in The Kaleidocast. Join Professor Brad Overstreet, Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbound, and Assistant Crypto Provost Don Fairweather Jenkins of the Metatechnic Institute, and Inquisitor James Earl King II, as they explore the stories drifting in and out of your reality. Freshman seminar term papers. Sam, where's the shredder? I'm going to make a ticker tape parade. Wait, why are you crying? Because of the fates. The fates! They've aligned against my meteoric rise once again. I had James looking for knowing you, knowing me. Holy crap, a Marcus song? Vintage! It was key to my research on the outer limits of subdimensional Mobius loop-to-loop linear plot structuralizations. Then Fairweather Jenkins shows up. Nemesis. And fed James to the story. How long must I languish in this gray, untenured purgatory? Nevermore! Get out of here! Freaking authors. Spelling bound, I told you about leaving the window open. Oh! James! You're alive! Get in here and... Uh, you're covered in mucus. Don't touch my side of the office. I'll get you a wet nap. Thank you. Good God, man. It's so good to see you alive, though empty-handed. How did you survive certain doom? The story ate Jenkins' undergraduates first and, and choked on them. I crawled out of its gullet. Song stories apparently don't have much of a gag request. Uh, that sounds horrible. So glad you're here on Chewed, though empty-handed. No, that's fine. It's fine. Listen, don't worry. You're still paying me. Because... Because, like I told Jenkins... Nemesis. The story is a two-parter, and I hid part two in a safe place. Excuse me. Over, over, street. Ah, here it is. Are you serious? Knowing you, knowing me, part two has been here on Brad's desk the entire time? Under the term papers? It's not like anybody else is going to go over there, right, Brad? Oh, that's what that was. I thought I'd won an award. (sighs) Fine, but what am I supposed to do with half a story? Just listen to the first half from last week's episode. What? 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 Nothing. Listen, I don't care what you do with it. Just don't open it here. How do I check its authenticity, then? Easy. Part one was fully poseable, but this one, part two, has a pull string and it talks. Reach in the back of the box and pull the string to hear the story. Knowing You, Knowing Me by Marcus Song Part two Wind shuddered the window pane as hail tapped the glass with a thousand fingernails. Brando had now removed the bubble wrap from the Panasonic camcorder, probably an old professional-grade reporter model. He placed it on the orange and brown comforter next to a stack of industrial-sized VHS tape cases. There's more. This is the second surprise I was going to show you. Show you both. He uncoiled some AV cables, gave June one end to insert into the TV. Red plopped ice into some party cups and took a big swig of his own drink, watching them work. Brando continued. Saul Blankenship, 
He was the CEO of Studio Mondo, remember? Yeah, I remember, said June. You may also remember the rumors about the fire. The one that destroyed all those masters? Especially the original footage shot in Gilliam Castle. June put two and two together. No way. How did you get a dub? She picked up one of the brick-sized VHS cases, matte black and textured like leather under her fingers. Its white label read Gilliam Castle, 2-20-87. These were supposed to be destroyed. Rumor has it the fire wasn't an accident, that Saul Blankenship, in a drunken tantrum, set his own storage space on fire rather than have those tapes sitting there where anyone could see them. This is it? The tape with the money shot? June asked. The one and only, said Brando. The TV blinked awake, color bars dividing its face into separate territories as June handed Brando the tape. Red tamped a cigarette onto his palm like a slow clap. That's a great act you two have. The way you complete each other's thoughts. Like mirror images. What is your problem? This is like history, June said. Red laughed as he dug in his pocket for his lighter. I may not be as into this collecting stuff as you two, but I know this ain't any kind of history worth an eight-hour drive. Brando made a throat noise. I'm sorry, would you mind smoking outside? It's bad for the tapes. They'll absorb the particulates. Red pulled out the lighter, flicked it open. Okay, boss. June, you want to join me? In a minute, let's watch this together first. June, you want to join me? The weight in Red's voice said he wanted to have a conversation. A real conversation out on the balcony. One she didn't want to deal with right now. I said in a minute. Red thumbed the lighter shut, stood up. I'll be right back, he said over his shoulder as he opened the door. June suppressed giggles as the door slammed. (laughs) That's the last thing he should have said, said June laughing. But even as she said it, her heart jumped its track in fear, in reaction to something she couldn't explain. He always says that, said Brando. What? Nothing. You ready? He inserted the tape into the camcorder and shut the carriage with a satisfying click of well-made machinery. How did you get these tapes? June asked. Does it matter? I'll just say from a guy I know that you don't know. And it won't affect the fact that they're here. And they're awesome, said Brando. Have you seen them? Brando put his chin on his hand, appeared to consider. You want to know if Sal Blankenship had good reason to destroy them. It's not like I'm not used to seeing heinous shit, said June. But those rumors, it's probably all hype, but as long as it's a mystery, a tease, you think maybe this is the real thing? The real horror? You used to dream about it. June's lips tightened. No, no. What makes you think that? Brando sighed. He held up the acroyer figure, pulled on its left arm. Childhood trauma. Seeing a movie that reminded you of it. Lifelong obsession with morbid stories. Not too hard to figure out. 
plucked the arm off the doll. Through some trick of the light, Akriyur's head twitched. And for a second, instead of a horned helmet, it had pale skin and a tiny plume of hair. Red hair. Seeing something mysterious in that movie. A single moment that maybe wasn't fake. That teased you with a glimpse of a hidden world. More terrible and more beautiful than anything in this boring excuse for a universe. It touched something buried in your reptile brain. Something that woke it up. She shook her head, though it took effort. I just like scary movies. Don't you remember anything else about Gilliam Castle? When you lost that toy. She shook her head again. And then the thumps next door started up again with a new urgency. Okay, Brando said. So let's dig the soil from which all of this grew. Let me just find the right spot on this tape. Brando bent over the camcorder, whirling it into fast forward. The TV screen rippled with the frantic speed of a disturbed ant nest. Human mouths, hands, eyes flickering in swarms. The thumps next door now sounded like footsteps. Only on the wall. Stomps that made a path from behind her bed, diagonally up to the wall lamp, which vibrated a bit as they passed, and finally coming to rest near the ceiling. Something caressed the wall there and started scratching, like someone digging with their fingernails. She strained to pinpoint where the sound came from, only now it was silent. And then she heard something outside, a voice that at first she thought was a cat or a coyote, but she thought she heard her name, Red's voice. What was that? Did you hear that? June said. Brando didn't turn around. Hear what? I thought I heard Red's voice. You want to find him? Yeah. Yeah. Good idea. She backed towards the front door, watching Brando manipulate time, going back and forth on the tape, digging for something she was no longer sure she wanted to see. Outside, her hair and clothes came to life as the wind tugged her every which way. By now, the hailstorm had spent itself, leaving the sky a deep, empty blue with stars coming out from hiding. The sight cleared her head somewhat. How could she have not seen that something was off about Brando, about the whole day? She should have listened to Red earlier. But then a pressure behind her eyes numbed this thought. Below her, discarded in the parking lot, lay Red's black coat, empty as a rattler's peeled-off skin. A lime-green mid-sized car swung its way through the parking lot, bumping over another object near the driveway that fed into the highway. A lone white sneaker. A familiar sneaker. Concrete slammed hard on her heels as she ran across the lot, stepping around the coat. A couple in matching pastel sweatpants turned as she passed, whispering to one another over the ice bucket the man cradled in his hands. She ran until she reached the sneaker, picked it up. Yes, it was Red's. Droplets of dark liquid spattered on its toe. She resisted the urge to sniff and see if it was whiskey. All she could smell was the tang of wet desert scrub. As she pondered, there came a wrenching sensation in her head that squirmed its way out the back of her neck in a burst of tingling nerves. As if an arrow embedded deep in her cerebellum had pulled itself out of her skull, leaving behind an empty wound that now bled fresh. Only in her mind's eye, it wasn't an arrow. It was more like an oozing fan of stingers, 
protrusion of some phantom limb. It folded itself along segmented joints and whisked itself back into her motel room. The world swayed in place, or was it herself that moved, reeling on weakened legs? There came a tearing noise as of muscle ripping free from its mooring. It vibrated the ground, set car alarms squealing. As violet lights tore at the edge of her vision, her head truly cleared. Her eyes, in the absence of the intrusive presence that had fed lies into her brain, finally saw true. She could see the malicious universe clinging as sticky as tar behind the visible surface of the motel, the ugly duck, the highway, even the sky itself. The scene presented as normal at first glance. Peterbilt's and Max hunkered down side by side, growling, and a line of cars shushed by on the highway, a black, a red, and then a blue car. But now she saw that the couple with the ice bucket that had whispered to one another, twitching back and forth along a narrow track from parking lot to sidewalk, walking forwards, back, forth, back, sweat and other dark fluids staining their pastel clothes. She could hear them protesting the indignity of their ordeal, only with voices that came out all slurred from faces caught in some process of disillusion. Ice poured in a constant stream from their bucket, leaving an ever-growing trail of melting cubes. The same three cars passed by over and over on the highway. Black, red, and blue. Black, red, and blue. Their emaciated drivers hunched over on steering wheels, arms loose showing no signs of life. The sky itself was wrong. The storm had resurged, its churning black folds squeezing down, lit through with lightning. Only it wasn't lightning. The bright cracks were too rhythmic and repetitive, and then she realized the flashes were a feathery web of veins, arteries laced out against the sky, twitching with a bruised light that funneled inward down to the motel. Down to her room on the third floor and its mocking pink door. She walked, slowly, back across the parking lot. Objects plunked down on the pavement next to her. She tried not to look down, but the skeletal shrikes twitching on the pavement still made her cringe in their state of worm-eaten animation. Knowledge seeped into her memory as she climbed the stairs. She remembered. She remembered being lost in Gilliam Castle for those hours she spent looking for her lost Acre year. Hours that had been veiled, walled off within her own head. She knew the ugly duck, this motel, had been waiting for her in red like some patient predator. Oh, Red, I'm so sorry. She knew who Brando was. The exertion of running up the stairs covered up the drumming of fear in her pulse. The green door to their neighbor's room was ajar. Even as she stared, it shut itself. No light seeped out from behind the curtains of that room. But the curtains themselves moved as if blown by wind. Then the fabric flattened against the window. Creases and folds squeezed against the glass, as if the entire room was filled with something solid, something squirming, alive, monstrous in scale. When June stumbled into her own room, she at first didn't notice that the lights were off. The TV's insect eye flickered, paused in freeze frame, though it jittered in a disturbing way. Brando still sat on the bed with the camcorder, only now he was bent over it almost double, not moving. The door between rooms gaped open, wide mouth brimming with shadow. 
It breathed a rotten meat aroma into the air. June slapped her hand over her nose. Did you find Red? asked Brando's voice. It didn't come from Brando himself, but from the next room. Loud, overdubbed somehow into a chorus of Brando's. A woman's voice, a mocking giggle, threaded its way through Brando's words. How long? said June. Time is quite a tangled hairball. What with new universes popping off every time you fart. But with enough patience, you can keep pulling those threads until you can find where something, or someone, begins. Like you. Or me, rather. I finally rooted you out. To the beginning of our birth. It's easy enough to pinch off a bubble of universe like this truck stop. Keep things going in a loop. But time gets snarled up pretty quick after a few iterations. Even more of a tangled yarn than usual. How long? Said June. Brando's body straightened up, stretching almost to the ceiling. When he turned his face to June, she had to bite down on her thumb to keep from screaming. His hawkish face that she'd found so appealing earlier collapsed in on itself. A membranous balloon that drifted over the bed along with his boneless body tugged by the attenuated shadow limb attached to his head and leading into the dark room next door. Brando's feet wheeled and stepped in midair, a mockery of walking. It was the legal threat that broke Saul Blankenship. There wasn't anything on those tapes that was all that terrifying. Believe it or not, the money shot? Gelatin. Animation. Hot Jimrod had certain talents, I'll grant him that. But no. Somehow his liquid fingers pressed play on the camcorder, reanimating the image on the TV screen, which showed the dizzying rush of a camera following an actor, shrieking in real terror at the darkness and melting folds of flesh-like stone that surrounded them. The chase went on for a bit longer, and when the cameraman's voice came on saying, Wait! Wait! But by now the actor was long gone his screams fading in the distance. The camera now lowered itself, pointing through a low arch carved to resemble a braid of serpents. Hello? Who are you? asked the cameraman into the darkness. A bright moon of a face emerged into the light. A girl's face, about twelve years old, smudged with dirt, entangled with sweaty strands of bright red hair. June's skin crawled at the cameraman's voice because she remembered hearing it, remembered seeing the light shining in her face and retreating, thinking it yet another vision sent to torment her. Brando spoke again. A missing girl, perhaps found, then lost as the crew filmed illegally in Gilliam Castle? That Saul couldn't live with. That was before I was born. Like I said, June, time is quite a tangle. Now Brando's voice rose in pitch until it sounded so familiar, so intimate, she couldn't mistake it for anyone else. She heard it every time she opened her mouth. Her own voice. How long? June said. How long have we been here, you bitch? Brando turned his lolling head to face her, 
then flew as he was yanked backward through the open door, which renewed its carnal bouquet. Her own voice came again, sounding like it spoke around a mouthful of hot tar. Easier just to show you. As June's twelve-year-old face looped back and forth on the TV, she walked into the neighboring room trying to deny what she knew would be there. But no, the sight could not be blocked out, not by her hands over her eyes or her recoiling mind. It was not a careless scene of slaughter, but the careful arrangement of someone with an aesthetic eye. Red's hands. So many of Red's hands piled into bonfire shapes on both beds, bleeding trees reaching up to the ceiling, walls painted with spirals of brown, so much darker than the crimson Cairo syrup mix used in the movies. But no torsos or entrails. Perhaps they were in the bathroom, from which came the sound of pipes gurgling into life. The centerpiece lay on the desk in front of the mirror. A number of heads piled into a wobbly pyramid showing red slack features in a full spectrum of pain and fear. And there was her own red, lying naked on the glistening carpet, unmoving but whole, his eyes wide and quivering in his sockets. The thing, the puppet that had been Brando, flexed and inspected the many-jointed knives he held in his fingers. No. Somehow they were his fingers. Then he drew them in precise cuts up and down Red's face. And then her boyfriend's face filleted itself into cubes and oblong shapes, bursting not with blood but with hissing white light misting out in plumes, the consistency of static from a dead television station, a sight she knew she'd seen countless times before in this same room. Its task done, Brando crumpled into a ball of shadow sucked into the bathroom with a slurp. We never loved him, June, came her own voice, growing in strength. A shining black wall pushed itself through the doorway, filling it completely. He doesn't deserve this, June said to the thing that she knew had insisted itself within her mind so many years ago in that cave. Perhaps the film crew had opened the door, or Gilliam himself, but whatever it was that had poured through that hole in the universe, it had eaten a cavity in her memories, excreting a cocoon that had squeezed her soul aside to make more room for itself. For herself, rather. A larval form. A grub. That's all she ever was compared to this thing she'd always seen in her dreams, thinking it was her lost micronaut. Its voice, so much like hearing her own thoughts spoken aloud, when I think of how I grew from you, your pork chop flesh, your jellied eyes, your utter ignorance that you were just a dream I had, that I woke up from, imagine how a butterfly feels seeing a caterpillar. Disgusting, right? But of course, I can be a little sentimental. You know that. You're the last one, or rather the first June that spawned all the others, scattered along those worm tracks you've eaten through your little garbage pile of time-space. A white grapefruit-sized orb floated to the surface of the gelatinous wall before her, pointed a darkened spot at her face. It was an eye. The entire wall, a face stretching from floor to ceiling, obscured by some kind of bloody net of rope. No, not rope. Enormous strands of red hair. 
her own face pulsing violet, the storms lightning within its folded layers. A puckering ruin of a mouth bubbled its way to the surface, spoke. You're not in mint condition anymore, but I can't bring myself to consume you. You're the first June, and the last. Just end it, said June. You're the last. End it, please. But she knew herself well enough. It was the same argument as ever. She anticipated with every nerve the moment that the jukebox and the ugly duck would start playing the opening notes of knowing you, knowing me, again. Marcus Song spent his formative years in the Pacific Northwest, splitting his time between Seattle and Boise. He's since moved to Shanghai, Portland, San Francisco, Wisconsin, and Washington, D.C., before settling in Brooklyn, where he lives with his wife, son, two cats, and a grumpy dragon. He is currently working on a fantasy novel and a collection of weird tales. Jen Carter is an actress hailing from the bases and burbs of Virginia, California, and Florida. She received her B.A. in theater from Florida State University and has been performing in one form or another since the age of four. Some of her favorite roles from regional and New York City theater include Stella in A Streetcar Named Desire, Patsy Cline in Always Patsy Cline, Jen in Sunday on the Rocks, Ula in The Producers, Kate Keller in The Miracle Worker, Maid Marian in Robin Hood, Ophelia in Hamlet, and Hermia, Peter Quince, and Cobweb in A Midsummer Night's Dream, just to name a handful. Jen currently lives in New York City with her teddy bear and her potted plant, Felix. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, who can be found at bsfwriters.com. The sound engineer for this episode is Matt Stewart, with assistance from Atticus Ryan Garten, Alicia Barrett, and Matt Mazzarella. Your hosts are Tanya Ireland-McLean as Dawn Fairweather-Jenkins, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act 2, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch, used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Special thanks go out to Marcy Arlen. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. Go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and for links to all our contributors. <laughs>